Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest today is Ricardo Espineda. He's a retired water source resources engineer, part of the California Department of Water Resources and Division of Flood Management, Floodplain Management. Again, now that he's retired, uh, he's, uh, he's on to other things, but he's still uh, heavily involved in the civil engineering world. So I wanted to uh, talk to him about what he's worked on and what he's working on now. So, Ricardo, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, what... What was your career like in water management resources? Like, why did you get into it? What are some big projects you worked on? Well, I think the reason I got into it, especially, you know, as an undergraduate in civil engineering, I went to a Catholic university in the Bay Area, Santa Clara University, and pretty much, at least back in the 70s, you know, were you going to focus on structural engineering or geotechnical engineering, which is like soils and foundations or water related, which is hydrology, hydraulics, dams, levees, things like that. And I think, uh, as I previously mentioned to you, I'm, I'm currently right now sitting in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, where my mother and father were originally from. And we've been coming here since we were little kids growing up in Los Angeles. I, I kind of say I was green deprived in Los Angeles. And then my mother would take us to a very green country about every three to four years. So I would see many rivers that didn't have adequate bridges. You know, you really couldn't drink the tap water. There was occasionally major hurricanes that caused extensive physical damage and human suffering. And so I always kind of leaned myself towards saying, okay, I'm going to work in some field where I can help develop infrastructure. And then I just, for some reason in college, I just got a couple of uh, elective classes. I got interested in water and the California Department of Water Resources came to the university to interview 
view, you know, upcoming graduates. That's the way they used to do it nationwide, the highway department and the water department. And, and I uh, was interested in going to grad school and Sacramento had a Sacramento state had a good grad school. So migrated to Sacramento and, and spent what seems like a quick 40.3 years with the California Department of Water Resources working on a variety of, of uh, big projects. And so if you'd like me, I can kind of describe some of those. Is there noteworthy? Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the big issues that California's had over the years? I mean, I'm picturing like fires and I don't know about droughts, but it seems like they've had resource management issues for many years. Well, of course, you know, California is a big state. We've got 39.5 million. We're probably the biggest, one of the biggest or the biggest agricultural state uh, in the nation with the Sacramento San Joaquin Valley collectively called the Central Valley and Imperial County. But it all depends on having, you know, we've got this Mediterranean climate where our rainfall essentially comes November, December, January, February, March, April, and then it's dry the rest of the year. So we have to really manage the water and, and kind of like at least what the tagline was when I first started was that two thirds of the rain falls in the northern one third of the state and two thirds of the population is in the lower one third of the state. So to, to adequately manage the water and this kind of was thought up during the, you know, the, the 1930s, um, we had to build extensive infrastructure with the federal government, uh, the United States Bureau of Reclamation and the state of California itself to move our water around. So probably more than any other state in the United States, we extensively manage our water resources at the state uh, with state agency and at the uh, federal level with the with the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. So we move water from the north to the south. So essentially, you know, for the state water project, which I spent seven years working on, we have Oroville Dam, which was in the news in 2017 with the spillway. It's a pretty big Earth, I think it was at the time the largest earthfill reservoir in the United States or in the world. Now I think it's the largest earthfill in the United States. And we move that water essentially to the border of Mexico through a series of gravity flowing down rivers. And then in the San Francisco Bay Area, which we call the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta, we start pumping it uphill all the way over the Tehachapi Mountains into the Los Angeles Basin. And so we have a series of big pumping plants, and then we recover energy when we run it downhill through hydroelectric plants. So I spent uh, seven years working on that on the operations and maintenance side and the computer modeling side and electrical transmission and on the financial analysis side. And so that was a huge piece of what I call linear infrastructure, like the highway system is linear infrastructure. So this water project, I think what's over a thousand miles long uh, is linear infrastructure. And then I moved over to flood management and our Central Valley has a history uh, with two major river systems, Sacramento and San Joaquin River has a history of flooding and the Corps of Engineers over time since the big floods in the Mississippi and the gold mining in the U.S., have been levee builders. And so we have a extensive levee system uh, in California coupled with flood channels and reservoirs that hold back flood water. So essentially, I spent a significant amount of time working on planning, designing, permitting facilities associated with the uh, what we call the state federal uh, flood control system. So one way of looking at that is kind of we're chasing these very rare events. So essentially, Richard, my two big projects were the state water project and the state federal flood control system. 
And those are essentially structural system. And then I spent a fair amount of time working on floodplain management. And that's essentially working with FEMA and the Corps of Engineers to develop, uh, to do flood studies. So this is, this is kind of um, trying to estimate how big of a flood could we expect to happen. And we've seen this happen nationwide, you know, New Orleans, Texas, uh, parts of the Mississippi, and then to put, develop those maps and then work with communities so that they plan their development so they're not developing in high-risk flood areas. So that can be quite the challenge to convince a community that you shouldn't do a certain land development when building housing, affordable housing, is, is quite an important thing within local government and to, to facilitate that. So smart plan. Are people, are people aware of the flood potential of various areas or, you know, only... I mean, are they only aware when there's a big flood and then the uh, the fear and the worry, you know, goes away after a year or two? Like, what's it like? Well, I, I think the sociologists essentially say that the, the, the half-life of a flood, meaning the point at which people start not worrying about it relative to their economic decision-making, saying buying a house or doing a big remodel or, or siting a shopping center is probably about five years. So, you know, we had our last major high water event in 2017 in California Central Valley and it was it wasn't a huge one but it was big enough to keep us working 24 hours for a long period of time and as we move down into the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley we have something called snowmelt flood so we were we were busy for the whole winter and spring but yes people do forget but when you do purchase a property the part of the purchase thing is do you need to buy flood insurance so any home mm-hmm. that backed by a federally backed uh, loan or mortgage is required to buy flood insurance if you're in a certain FEMA zone. So the FEMA maps, which are insurance flood maps as part of the National Flood Insurance Program, have become the de facto. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Risk, flood risk analysis maps, but they have certain limitations. They're, they're an estimate and they're a good estimate, but our department, Department of Water Resources and programs that I've been involved with, we've developed additional maps showing flood awareness or approximation of bigger events. And so with climate change, that's very important. We don't socialize them as well as we would like to. And sometimes some communities don't want to hear that they're in a 200-year flood zone or a 500-year flood zone. But given the statistical analysis of everything that is happening, we're seeing floods become bigger and we're seeing kind of the physics of floods change, meaning that that snow is happening at higher elevation. So rain, rain is, snow line is getting higher in elevation. That's a big thing we watch out in, in, in Sacramento is how cold is the incoming storm. So we may see more flooding during the wintertime as the snow level goes up and the rain level, you know, the, the break between rain and snow gets higher and higher. 
So given, given all those changes and, and, and what we're analyzing, we could see bigger floods during the wintertime, but our system is barely designed to handle, except for a few of the larger cities in the Central Valley, can barely handle a 100-year flood. That's coupled with the reservoir operation. So uh, we're looking at a variety of mean. We, we essentially have to, Richard, use a portfolio, a portfolio method to reduce the residual risk as much as possible. So well-maintained levees, improve those levees, have reservoir dams and reservoirs with empty space during the winter for the flood water where possible, work closely with the Army Corps of Engineers, have good flood maps with FEMA, but also work with communities so they make smarter decisions. And then have people buy, even if they're not required to buy flood insurance, many buy it voluntarily. Is the flood water going to be useful? Like why not capture millions and millions and millions of gallons of flood water where you know it shows up pretty frequently and then use that to irrigate other spots or keep it in reserve for droughts? Well, that's what we that's what we do as much as possible. We hope to replenish the groundwater. And there's actually, you, you hit on it exactly. There's something called flood mark that we call that a, a, a kind of a management uh, action that we've developed for the California Water Plan. And if you Google it, you could find out a lot about it. It's called flood water for managed aquifer recharge. Flood water for managed aquifer recharge. So essentially that means taking flood water out of the rivers and spreading it out on agricultural lands to replenish the diminishing groundwater. But essentially for the major rivers, so much water is coming down that we capture it in the reservoirs as much as we can. And it, in many cases, like near Sacramento, we have the Sacramento River and the American River coming into Sacramento and near and, and very close nearby to those, we have what's called the Yolo Bypass that has five times the capacity of the Sacramento River. And that's pretty much empty, an empty levee area that's used for wildlife habitat and rice farming until about every six years that it gets water, uh, water is diverted into that overflow channel. And the Mississippi system has, has a similar system where they have various places where water is bled off the river. So we do look at trying to capture as much storm water as we can in the reservoirs. And we're hoping that as it flows down rivers and uh, and we can divert it into lower velocity flow areas that it will recharge the groundwater. Um, and that's done more also in Los Angeles and parts of Southern California where they don't have huge flood flows, but they have enough that they try to capture them in uh, basins and recharge the groundwater as much as possible. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So does, I mean, does this work? Is it useful to use flood water or is it just, it's pretty rare that it's useful. I mean, what's, you know. No, it's, I would say, yes, it's useful as a water supply, but the types of floods that we see, it depends on which part of California you're in. The types of floods that we see are such that we just have to manage a, a huge amount of water and there's no place to put it. So it's only for kind of some of those smaller streams where you're able to kind of capture it in a detention basin and use it. So there's also kind of the stormwater that occurs in cities and normally that can be highly polluted water because it's running out of off of asphalt and concrete and roofs that so collects a lot of the chemicals. And tr- traditionally, that sometimes is gone because the uh, sewage treatment plants don't have the capacity. But now they're trying to, uh, we, we learned during the five-year drought in California, which ended in 2017, so essentially 2012 to 2017 or through winter of 2016, 
that we have to capture every every drop of water counts. So more communities are capturing and treating their stormwater and trying to put it back into the ground as much as uh, as much as possible. So necessity created kind of new methods to you know create a, a water supply because we know that you know we have one year we have a say. In five years, we'll have a normal water year, three dry years, and one wet year. And about every 10 to 15 years, we'll have a really wet year where we have to manage the the floodwaters via the levee system. Um, and many how, times, how polluted is the uh, you know is is floodwater versus uh, you know from a water treatment plant? Flood. So flood. The floodwater that I'm referring to that can be pretty polluted is the floodwater that's in urban areas. So the you call it you can call it urban urban drainage or, or you know the 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 rain comes and you know during the winter time or whatever part of the year and that water runs off and the the, the treatment plants can only handle a certain capacity so the question comes becomes what do you do with the excess do you just discharge it into the rivers untreated or do you try to capture it in some other storage and then treat it so that's the water that's more heavily polluted the the floodwaters, as long as they're on the main river systems, as long as they stay in the river, they could be carrying lots of sediment because there's so much velocity and things like that. But they're, it's, you know, it's pretty decent. It's pretty decent water just because of the amount of dilution that occurs. Water in the rivers of the Central Valley, my wife is a water quality chemist for the same department, and waters in the Central Valley rivers that is normally flowing depends on which river you're in because there can be a lot of agricultural runoff from irrigation water back into the system that has a lot of the agricultural remnants of the fertilizer and pesticides that are used. And so um, for agriculture, that water doesn't really have to be treated. But once that water goes into a system where it's going to be used for urban purposes, it needs to be heavily treated. And, and one of the taglines that we say, Richard, the, mo- the more we're testing water, the more bad stuff we're finding. So it, it depends on um, you know, it's each city or county and water entity within that to essentially have enough treatment infrastructure to appropriately treat their water supply to drinking water levels. And that's a big difference between the country that I'm in right now and you know, being back in California, that in most places, not all places in California, you can drink water out of a tap. And that's generally true of the United States in general. You're not hesitant to right. fill up your glass in the hotel out of the sink, but you would never do that in Honduras. You buy the five-gallon water jugs and the truck comes down the street and it kind of rings a bell and you know, okay, let's let's get a new five-gallon container. Oh, wow. The no one in Honduras is safe. It's not safe to drink out of the tap, for instance. The city that I'm in supposedly has an advanced water treatment system, but I'm not exactly sure how well it's been socialized. So I grew up drinking <laughs> bottled water. <laughs> so uh, uh, so many people who can't afford the bottled water will boil it on their on their stoves. So, you know, but th- that's that's a big difference. Just like being in a third world country, you really don't trust the mail system. But we trust the mail system mostly in the United States. So, and, and here yeah. power is interrupted pretty frequently. So you devise all these methods of having like a battery backup system. So you're not in total darkness or you have whatever battery powered lanterns. So you just get used to different things. So I, I really appreciate, and I think my 40.3 years with the Department of Water Resources and my wife's almost 30 year career has gone by fast because I have I can kind of juxtapose it next to spending extensive time in 
in Central America and seeing the difference in infrastructure and what well-managed infrastructure and, and our department, you know, our the different systems that we run in our Department of Water Resources, the 1,600-mile levee and flood bypass system, the reservoir operations, and the state water project, which moves up to close to 3 million acre feet of year from Northern California to Southern California in the valley. Uh, there, nothing's, nothing's perfect, and we flub up at times, but um, we keep on, we're, we have super dedicated people from all over the world um, working on it, along with consultants, and it's just kind of a the intrigue or chasing the rare event, whether it's a um, drought or a flood or some type of uh, breakdown of the infrastructure, it just keeps us motivated to drink lots of coffee and spend lots of time, you know, working as a team with our field people and with our, our office engineer. So the Orville double spillway disaster was an example that we were able to get through that, but no one would have ever expected this moderate flood event because it was a flood event that water mm. spilling over the main spillway would cause the concrete on the spillway to erode and then we kind of shut that one off and went to the auxiliary spillway and that one had that one was not lined with concrete and that had unexpected high amounts of erosion so that was a wake up call for the rest of the world about major dams and the operation of those dams during flood events and these are dams that provide hydroelectric power water supply, recreation, flood, and other events have occurred in our history. There was a gate on Folsom Dam near Sacramento in 1995 that they were testing it. They called exercising the gate, and somehow they changed the lubricant, and the gate got stuck open and drained. I think it was like 40% of the lake drained out, and a boat almost, a boat did get sucked through, but those people were able to jump out swim to shore. So that was a wake-up call for around the world. So these these events happen, just like the Boeing jet, and it's a wake-up call, and you go back, and you do a ton of analysis, and then you try to learn from your lesson for your own facility, but you try to communicate that to the rest of the, to the rest of the, essentially to the rest of the world, and that's kind of what I was involved with in New Orleans also with the levee with the, the failure of the levees in Katrina and how they were rebuilt by the Corps of Engineers and the, the local entities down there. Well, what's new in the world of uh, water? What new technology or new treatments or new systems have you observed that maybe you're excited about? Maybe they're not here yet, but they're on the way. Well, I would say two things, Richard, that at least in California, because we're the governor over the weekend, over the last couple of days, I lose track. So I'm not on a regular work schedule right now. We had two or three counties declared a drought emergency and he added 44 counties. So I think we're up to 47 of 58 California counties that are in a drought emergency. And that, that, that drought emergency results in maybe loosening some environmental laws and mandatory conservation and various things. You know, you may not be able to water your lawn and changes the rules, the rule book a little bit. There's an, a government entity called the State Water Resources Control Board in California that manages water rights out of rivers. So essentially what I'm trying to say with that is, you know, our last drought ended in 2017 with a high water year, and now we're back into two years of dry weather. And we're, our reservoirs, which is our kind of emergency storage for the next year, are pretty low. Uh, I think Oroville is down to 40% of its, of its historic capacity or 40% of its total capacity. So two things that I've seen in the urban area. So there's a couple different trends that we're seeing. We're seeing small communities really struggle to keep up their water supply, which may be ground 
water base or small stream base. And as those streams dry up or that water table drops down, they just don't have the physical infrastructure to get the water to the water treatment plant that makes it uh, available for drinking. And many times their sewage treatment plants are outdated and they don't have the small communities are struggling to raise the money through the beneficiary pay system, you know, their, their ability to sell bonds. The, the ratepayers don't want to, are sometimes hesitant to support those bonds to do major upgrades. Sacramento has a very advanced water, wastewater treatment system where you can almost put the water back. Well, they are putting the water back in the river. And I think they're just spending another billion dollars doing some more advanced treatment. So that's one trend that small communities are struggling with their water supply and water treatment and wastewater treatment. We're seeing in bigger urban areas like Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, Santa Barbara, portions of the Bay Area, they want to diversify their portfolio. So we call it the regional, the integrated regional approach or the portfolio approach to their water supply. And the two new sources of water essentially is desalination. And the biggest plant in the Western Hemisphere is in Carlsbad, California, which is north of San Diego called Poseidon. So it's a private plant. I think Poseidon's a company from Israel. And San Diego County Water Agency is buying 100% of its output. Now, that water is too way too expensive to use to water your lawn. So that leads to, as new construction occurs, that pipes come into your house and one is treated water for non-drinking and one is drinking water. So you definitely don't want to be watering your plants with desalinated water because it, your, your water bill is going to be too expensive. So they're talking about well, building how, how another one is, of those. Uh, how much is desalinated water versus other methods of treatment? Um, it depends on every year of what's the available supply. So the desal water, the last I heard, is about $1,000 per acre foot, which is one foot of water over one acre of land or 43,560 cubic feet. Um, and it can be, say, double the price, uh, double or a little bit more than double the price. It just depends on the water year. There's one water agency in California, Yuba County Water Agency, that has built a reservoir in the 1940s or 50s, Bullard's Bar, and they have more water that they can use. So they're regularly under the water market scheme. They're regularly selling uh, maybe a year or two ahead, maybe one year ahead or a year or two ahead water to different water agencies in Southern California. So the question becomes is how do you move that water and that water sometimes is $300 an acre foot, 200 just depends on what the market will bear. And they move that through these massive federal state water transportation projects that, that aren't moving as much water as they normally did because it's a dry year. So we let them, we, we call it wheeling the water through the system. So they have to pay a fee to use our conveyance or our, our water transportation system. So desalination, there's another plant Poseidon is proposing. It's near its, its permit, end of the permit process in Huntington Beach. So that's, that's, you know, a beach area in, 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 you know, going south from Los Angeles. And then Monterey, there's a desal plant in Santa Barbara that went off. They built it in the nineties and then it, uh, they shut it down and then they've reactivated and added to it. And it's running, and and that's part of their water supply. And then the Monterey Peninsula, a private water company there, is uh, wants to build a water treatment. I'm sorry, a desalination plant. And usually there's 
a fair amount of skepticism because of the water, how, how expensive that water is. And the general method that's used, Richard, is reverse osmosis. So just think of it as pushing salt water through a very, very fine filter requires lots of energy and it leaves the salt behind. And so it's energy intense, but it is a water supply. And um, that's coming into being the, the economic free market economic forces are making that water economically viable if you have a big, big, a big enough population base to spread the cost. Also in San Diego, there's the concept of treating sewage water and that that's always been a process and putting that back. Usually they would put that back in spreading basins or in wells. And that water goes back into the groundwater and the groundwater filtering process kind of cleans it up to the next level. And then that water is pulled back up at another well and then treated at the water treatment plant. But the, the project called Pure Water run by, I think it's San Diego County Water Agency and a water entity in San Diego. There's lots of government entities dealing with water. Uh, the county water, I think it's the, the county water agency. They're essentially putting wastewater treated wastewater, which has been treated to the highest level and regularly tested right back into Miramar Reservoir. So it's it's putting the yuck factor has, they've overcome that and they've socialized the project. Some people still may say they don't like it, but it's happening now and they want to increase its capacity. So the treatment methods, you know, we're getting smarter and more advanced methodologies are essentially that we can treat sewage water and drink it directly. But in this case, they're mixing it in with a, with water in an existing reservoir. And maybe there's some additional treatment. I don't know. But I know uh, Miramar Reservoir is one of their main drinking water reservoirs. There's no boating allowed. So those are the two, two, new, two new methods that are, that are gaining. I mean, desal has been around for a while. Navy ships use it. And they use it in Saudi Arabia and Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. But it's, it's getting being done at a uh, – they're scaling it up. Uh, of course, conservation is another thing. I mean, if I go around Sacramento, which has pretty good water rights, you're seeing maybe one in 10 uh, lawns, depending upon where you're at in Sacramento and how close you are to the river, being uh, changing to xeriscape, which is the low water use uh, landscaping, gravel, right. bark, flora, and that kind of thing. So everybody's trying to do that their thing. And in Sacramento, water meters were considered you could lose your political office if you supported water meters. But I think a state law was passed and every city above a certain population needs a water meter. So they've already got the chalk in front of my house where the water <laughs> where they're going to be doing some excavation in the near future. So I'll be seeing how much water have, I use. What do, you, what do you mean? Don't they have water meters on houses anyway? No, no, not in not in large, not in many water rich areas. So my house is really? by the American River in Sacramento and we don't have water meters. We just pay a flat rate. But now we will pay a graduated rate depending on how much we use. And that supposedly will entice us to conserve a little bit more by us looking at the the volume of water that we're using, how many cubic feet or however they're going to measure it. So well, I've always been in places where they have a water meter and you have to pay, you know, so it's news to me. Depends on where you're at. You know, maybe I'm sure in the, in the drier area I don't know about in Chicago how, how that worked uh, or in the Midwest, you know, where there's more plentiful water supply. But in, in Sacramento, it's been slow in coming, but it's it's happening now. Yeah. OK. So what, one, one, thing I didn't mention, one thing I didn't mention was that in California, Richard, agriculture uses two thirds of the water, developed water supply and urban uses one third. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of battles in California. 
And so at times, urban and agriculture get along and ag sells their water to, to urban. But there's always kind of that pull and tug. Well, very good. Uh, Ricardo, what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, your work? Where can they go? Well, the Department of Water Resources. So a lot of my work is with the Army Corps of Engineers, and I continue to work with them, FEMA, and the Department of Water Resources. So our water.ca.gov is our department's website, and it talks about our It has a lot of information about the state water project, which is that big project of dams and hydroelectric plants and pumping plants and canals and pipelines that moves water since the mid-1960s from Northern California to Southern California. So there's a lot there. There's also a lot on our website about the state federal levy system. And, uh, you know, if you want more information about, we have information on our website about desalination We have something called the California Water Plan that we're required to update every five years. And uh, that's a very, very big document. So you have to kind of pick and choose what you want to read. But there's also Governor Gavin Newsom's Water Resilience Portfolio. So that's his kind of shortened version of the water plan on how we're going to be resilient managing our water resources. And And I think what's important to note also, Richard, in California... To a certain degree, we want our cake and eat it too. We want to see a healthy river with anadromous fisheries, meaning migratory fish, salmon, and steelhead. We want to see trees along the river. We want to use that river as a flood control channel. We want to develop hydroelectric power. We want to see irrigated fields next to it. We want to be able to canoe, kayak, and run power boats down it. So we, we want a little bit of everything, and that takes a tremendous amount of cooperation with all the different entities and everybody sometimes has to give up something. We have to change our design for the fish. We have to put fish screens on our pumps, all different types of things. But with what, you know, the man's impact on water in California has really changed the, the way the rivers operate because we've changed how much flow goes down them by building dams. So we're trying to do our best to preserve the, you know, the ecosystem and, and the watersheds associated with them. And that ties in the fire, you know, because you mega fires in the upper parts of the watershed certainly don't help the, doesn't help the water supply below. So it's a constant balance. And I think that's what keeps us all caffeinated. So any any young person interested in water resources, California is a great place to go. And we're always looking for great engineers and scientists of all all backgrounds, to, including technicians, to help us out. Okay. Well, very good, Ricardo. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Right. And and one last thing, Richard, we work very cooperatively with, with uh, scientists and engineers in the federal government and at the local level. So we have to integrate through the government agencies. And then the private sector, of course, is involved with that. So it, it takes people who are willing to communicate extensively with, with their peers and, and all different, uh, you know, different organizations. So I appreciate your time today. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.